Today's episode is brought to you by Casper, where you can get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price and get $50 off your order when you go to casper.com best and use the offer code best at checkout. The law, it's not sacred. And to challenge it shakes our consciousness. If you can take that radical action in a way that genuinely speaks to everybody else, then you not only have their attention, you have their inspiration, and you build movements that way. Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from 350.org's documentary Disobedience, The Young Turks, Counterspin, The David Pakman Show, and Activism Today from 350.org, Break Free 2016. Nothing radical about anything we're talking about. Radicals work at oil companies. If you are willing to get up in the morning and make your fortune by altering the chemical composition of the atmosphere, and you're willing to do it once scientists have told you what would happen, and once you've seen it happen, once you watch the Arctic start to melt, if you're willing to do that, then you're a radical, and our job is to try and check that radicalism. An investigation is underway into ExxonMobil, the huge oil company, buried research about the effects of climate change. Reports suggest more than 30 years ago, Exxon's own scientists were taking climate change projections into account in its operational plans. Exxon was on the cutting edge of science. They wanted to be on the cutting edge of science 40 years ago on climate change. They understood that farther down the road, if the science was accurate, there would be limits placed on emissions from fossil fuels. So their strategy at that time was that we want to have a say in what those limits look like. When their senior scientists told their senior executives what was coming, Exxon started making sure that all its drilling rigs were climate-proof so that they could withstand the rising sea level. But they did not tell the rest of us just the opposite. Around 1989, there was a shift in the thinking at the executive level. And that was when Exxon joined this group called the Global Climate Coalition, which sounds very green. But in fact, they were put together to fight any policy reaction to climate change. Exxon and others ended up hiring the veterans of the tobacco industry to try and make the same basic argument that the cigarette guys had made. After three decades of investigation, no causal link between smoking and disease has been established. Scientific evidence remains inconclusive as to whether human activities affect the global climate. It was effective, and it cost us a generation's worth of time.
Well over 100 countries are set to sign the Paris Agreement, an international accord that could save the planet from our best efforts to set it on fire. But you might be wondering, what is the Paris Agreement? Well, it sets in motion a process for steep emissions cuts worldwide, and it establishes the important goal of limiting warming to only 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels which is still a dangerous amount of warming, and even so might be more than we can achieve, but it's important to set the goal, and it's important to go at it in a smart way. And the way that it does it is by allowing individual countries to tailor their emissions cuts to their particular economic and political situation while working together as a, as a planet to achieve the overall goal. Uh, and today marks the culmination of a lot of work that it's taken to get to this point. At the COP21 UN Climate Summit in Paris, 195 countries agreed to adopt the Paris Agreement. On December 12th, they negotiated the text of the document and agreed to adopt it without uh, objection. Now, a lot of other conferences, though, have fallen apart at that point, which is why important uh, today is so uh, crucial when some 155 countries from Somalia to Singapore are expected to sign. And that includes, by the way, the U.S. Uh, and China. And now any sort of climate agreement that does not include those two countries is not going to be that effective in a global sense. And so it's important uh, that it will be uh, those two countries as well. And the U.S. is uh, going to be ratifying it, we believe, through the executive order of President Obama, since the Republicans in Congress would never go along with it. Uh, they apparently don't care if the world literally burns. Uh, but signing onto the agreement is not the last step even so. After that, each country needs to submit an action plan, uh, a proposal for the actions that they will take to make the actual uh, plan effective. And as I said, that is going to be individually tailored. Some countries have far fewer emissions already, even per capita, and thus have less to do, while some uh, uh, fully industrialized or newly industrialized countries are going to have to make far more massive changes. So in theory, at this point, a lot could still go wrong. I mean, we need to make sure that all of these plans for over 100 countries are ambitious enough while at the same time making sure that they're actually followed. It doesn't matter if you put forth a great plan if they don't actually do the work. But there is cause to be optimistic, at least at this point. Just since December, before even signing on to the plan, India approved six solar projects. Vietnam has said it will stop building coal plants. China announced a five-year plan that sets stricter uh, climate targets. The United States halted new coal leases on federal land. J.P. Morgan said it would stop financing new coal mines. And Saudi Arabia said it won't be an oil state within 20 years. Now, all of that is good news, but we will need that and far, far more to reach the, uh, the targets in terms of carbon emissions for the Paris Agreement. But you have to remember what's on the line. It is so important that we get out in front of climate change, so important that we not allow it to wreck our environment, that it is awesome that we're able to make this big step forward on the Paris Agreement. And it's fitting, by the way, that it happens on Earth Day. In the moon of the budding trees, I was gifted new eyes to see All of the shifting shape and ways you can be Wake the dreams into realities Wake the dreams into realities Sunset diamonds trickle down our cheeks The language of no words is how we speak Part your mama spinning firelight And 
Little bear singing by the fireside. 174 countries and the European Union signed a multilateral deal on climate change recently at UN headquarters in New York. We're told that's the largest number of first-day signatures ever to an international agreement. The Paris Agreement set several long-term climate goals, including holding average temperatures below a 2 degrees Celsius rise from pre-industrial levels. At the same time, David Power of the New Economics Foundation notes that BP's annual energy outlook confidently predicts fossil fuels will account for 80% of global energy usage in 2035. Power's conclusion is that given the speed and depth of the shift required, political will on climate is a prerequisite. And the fossil fuel industry is banking on politicians not having the chutzpah to do what it takes to keep it in the ground. A test of the public's power to constrain an industry whose profit depends on endangering public health is playing out right now as media process evidence showing that Exxon knew, at least in 1977 and probably much earlier, that carbon dioxide pollution from the burning of fossil fuels posed a global threat. Not only did they shunt aside their own research, but they and others engaged in a dogged and multifaceted campaign to undermine scientific understanding and mislead the public. Well, that work has been carried forward by Neela Banerjee and others at Inside Climate News, at the Los Angeles Times, working with Columbia School of Journalism. It's building on work from the Center for International Environmental Law and the Union of Concerned Scientists. Years, really, of effort coming together now for this major story, including work by our next guest. Brendan DeMell is executive director and managing editor of Desmog Blog. He joins us now by phone from Seattle, Washington. Welcome. Welcome back to Counterspin, Brendan DeMell. Thank you very much for having me, Janine. Well, one of the most recent pieces on Smog blog is headed with a quote, there is no doubt. So let's leap right in with the documents that you have just gone through and how they fit with what we are learning about what Exxon knew when about climate change. That's right. A team of DSMOG researchers went to an archive in Calgary to discover these documents that are sitting in an Imperial Oil, which is uh, Exxon's Canadian subsidiary, uh, had an archive at a, at a museum there. And we first learned of the existence of that archive in the Los Angeles Times reporting that you mentioned earlier by the Columbia Journalism School students. So we found these documents after you know digging. They had been there as well, the, uh, the L.A. Times team and hadn't seen these particular documents that we found, which actually set the clock back another decade in terms of when Exxon knew that CO2 pollution was a threat to the environment and particularly to the atmosphere. For you know, The buildup of CO2 pollution was causing shifts in the climate. And we found two documents in particular that uh, we found to be pretty darning evidence. Uh, you referenced the one in particular that says there is no doubt that increases in fossil fuel usage, you know, uh, goes on to say, are aggravating the potential problem of increased CO2 in the atmosphere. And that's a, a pretty definitive acknowledgement by this, you know, imperial oil engineer who was writing and distributing this information to executives throughout Exxon's global operations, including in London 
and you know throughout its U.S. and Canadian operations, they certainly knew with a far greater degree of certainty than they are currently telling the press and the public uh, that this was a problem. And, and this was a report from 1980. And again, you referenced 1977. That was an important date that came up in the uh, in previous reporting by Inside Climate News. The second document that we found uh, is from 1970 and talks about evidence from the late 60s uh, that shows, uh, again, this was an Imperial Oil internal report uh, called Pollution is Everybody's Business, and it focused on air pollution, and it referenced CO2, source from combustion, as a key pollutant of concern to the business. And that report cited a 1969 scientific study that connected the burning of fossil fuels and the rise of CO2 in the atmosphere and the potential effects it would have on weather patterns and global temperatures. So here we are. This is far earlier than even we had known. So that, that's the crux of our story on D-Smog is they knew earlier, they knew with certainty, and they knew globally. Well, we know that it's not just Exxon or Imperial in, in Canada. We know that other oil companies did, did research, but there's a reason to focus on Exxon because they were kind of an industry leader. It wasn't just that they did some research. They really did ambitious research. That's absolutely right. And what these documents are, are revealing to us is, you know, imagine where the world would be if Exxon had continued to pursue that research and embrace its own scientific understanding of climate change decades ago. But as we know, rather than doing that, they pivoted antagonistically against the science and started funding decades of denial and deception, individuals and think tanks that they were pumping money into to confuse the public and policymakers about the importance of addressing climate change. And here's where the documents couldn't have them more exposed. Uh, Exxon, of course, was a founding member of what was called the Global Climate Coalition created in 1989. And the Global Climate Coalition, at the same time as they're giving a backgrounder to politicians and the media that says the role of greenhouse gases and climate change is not well understood. At the same time, they have an internal memo saying the scientific basis for the greenhouse effect is well established and cannot be denied. So I guess what that kind of moves me on to is the power of uncertainty when it comes to making regulations. I mean, of course, we can see that the industry is trying to sow uncertainty, but what about the part of regulators? Why were they so convinced by it? Well, yeah, I mean, you referenced the the amount of misinformation that started to percolate out of groups like the Global Climate Coalition, and that particular inside memo you mentioned was written by a mobile executive. So you definitely show uh, the beginnings, and that was the late 80s. It carried forward until the present, mm-hmm. uh, you know, decades of groups like the Global Climate Coalition that have attempted to look like third-party experts or credible sources of information that were, in fact, knowingly spreading misinformation and and creating doubt. And that, again, goes in parallel with the tactics of the tobacco industry in evading accountability for its own deadly product and and knowledge of cancer and and other health effects from its products, uh, which was to sow doubt. They knew that they could evade accountability or at least delay regulatory and public scrutiny by suggesting that there was doubt about the science. So they created their own institutes that sounded credible. They created their own science. 
that undermined what was known in the in the peer-reviewed literature in the health community about the impacts. And the oil companies followed that playbook, you know, to a T, and used the same sort of tactics to suggest that, oh, well, we're not sure yet. You know, let's study this further. Let's take time before regulatory action addresses this problem. So it's essentially the exact same tactic, and regulators and certainly policymakers bought it, right. unfortunately. And that's right. led us to the situation we're in, where climate change is having very real impacts now. You know, we're seeing them presently. And the delay that was caused by this deceptive campaign by Exxon and the Global Climate Coalition and other major oil companies is a real reason why we haven't addressed this aggressively. Right. And and it is depressing the degree to which government deferred to industry, but it's also explicable to the extent that government often rely on industry for the science that they use to determine regulations. You referred to kind of the standard line, and if folks have been reading any reporting on this, they will know that it really doesn't matter who the industry spokesperson is. In every news story, you will read really an almost identical kind of almost Stepford-like line, which will be to say, it's not credible or it's preposterous to suggest that Exxon reached definitive conclusions decades before the world's experts and while climate science was in an early stage of development and then went out of their way to hide those conclusions from the public. It's funny that they say, oh golly, we're not experts. How could we have figured it out before the world's experts when in fact they were really doing the kind of science that you would need to come to conclusions about this. It was incredible science. It really was. I mean, their monitoring equipment, their modeling, it was spectacular. And it actually was, some of it was passed on to government agencies, you know, who then picked up what they could given their limited budgets. But Exxon was light years ahead on this issue, for sure. And so it's, it is telling now that their media spokespeople they have a two-pronged strategy. Number one is to suggest that there was uncertainty and we didn't know. And number two is to attack the messenger. Any journalist that writes a story about this is immediately attacked, harassed. Their editors are harassed. I was frankly shocked at the antagonistic and hostile response that I received in doing due diligence, reaching out to Exxon for comment on these documents in this story. Alan Jeffers, their media spokesperson, immediately attacked me and, and my outlet and suggested we're not credible and, you know, this is outrageous. Well, how can you do this reporting? So, you know, they're, they're very aggressive, and we've seen that over decades. You know, Exxon's always been among the more prickly uh, when it comes to media covering their activities. And so I think that's an important sort of lesson for other journalists looking at this. Okay, a company or an industry intentionally sowing doubt, you know, about a potentially catastrophic threat when they, in fact, know that there is little or no doubt. And then, as the timeline shows us, as the reality, as the science becomes clearer, their denial gets bigger, you know, and bigger and bigger. That implies maybe sociopathy, you know, I mean, maybe moral turpitude. It's a reason, certainly, that many people want to support a, a death penalty for corporations. But what's the criminal violation here besides misleading advertising? What is the grounds that people are using to, to go after Exxon here? That's a wonderful question. It's obviously reached 
the level of interest. We now have New York and California led the way with their attorneys general announcing investigations into Exxon's knowledge and what that might mean in terms of accountability for misleading the public and lawmakers. Uh, and then now there are 17 other states that have announced that they're looking into it. And then the U.S. Virgin Islands has announced actions against at least two of the sort of front groups or operative organizations that were spreading misinformation. So we are now in a situation where accountability work is being done. I'm not an expert in the legal background on that, but I know that, that those attorneys general and others are looking into sort of similar fraud and other actions that were taken against the tobacco companies for similar deception uh, and applying those legal structures to the oil industry to see whether or not there could be some point at which Exxon and others' knowledge of this problem and, and subsequent deception was fraudulent and led us to this disastrous climate situation we're in. It sort of speaks to the weakness of our legal apparatus that we have to go through kind of FTC fraud charges to talk about, you know, willfully withholding from the public information that could prevent catastrophe. And one of the things that your work has brought up is that there were then, as there are no doubt now, people inside industry saying the same thing. You referred to the chemical engineer from Imperial Oil years ago. That was H.R. Holland who was talking about harms and who also said, you know, this has to be regulated. Industry isn't going to do this voluntarily. Part of the tragedy is all the folks even within the industry who tried to change its course and who were just unsuccessful in doing so. Exactly. It was interesting as well that... The company itself, in one of the memos, referred to its CO2 pollution as antisocial behavior. <laughs> and this was decades ago. I mean, they knew, the engineers knew that this was a problem. And, and not only was it directly threatening their bottom line, the ability to continue to sell oil and to continue with their business model, which has been extremely oil-centric as opposed to energy-centric, which might be a solution to this problem. They knew it was a big deal. They knew that pollution was bad. That same memo that I referenced earlier, that there is no doubt memo, it says technology exists to remove CO2 from stacked gases, and this was, again, 1980, but removal of only 50% of the CO2 would double the cost of power generation. And that was just talking about CO2 pollution from power plants. But, again, you see their immediate concern is this is going to cost us money. We don't want to spend the money to do this right. We just want to delay accountability and, and continue to do what we're doing. And that was what led them to the idea of deception instead of owning the science and, and doing the right thing. Today's episode is sponsored by Casper. They're a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress and sells it directly to customers, getting rid of all the extra expense of showroom markups and salesmen. An in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper, and it's manufactured right here in the U.S. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams for a sleep surface that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine even named it one of the best inventions of 2015. And now that same team has developed an adaptive pillow and saw breathable sheets. So how much is a Casper going to save you compared to a standard mattress? 
Mattresses can often cost well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses start at just $500 for a twin-size bed and go up to $950 for king. Plus, they offer free shipping right to your door in an impossibly small box, and your purchase is risk-free because you get to try it out at home for up to 100 days with the option to return it for a complete refund. And as a special offer, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase and support this show by visiting casper.com best and using the offer code best at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. You can also find that URL linked up on my website, but again, it's casper.com best and the offer code is best at checkout. I'm joined today by Professor Naomi Oreskes, Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University and co-author with Eric Conway of Merchants of Doubt. Uh, it's so great to have you on. You know, in the book, you sort of draw a parallel between the disinformation campaign currently going on around climate ch change to past disinformation campaigns, including, of course, that around tobacco and smoking. You talk about acid rain, hole in the ozone layer. Uh, talk to us first about the ways in which the the organization of this disinformation campaign is similar to those past. In 2004, I wrote a paper called The Scientific Consensus on Climate Change, in which I documented the fact that in the scientific community, there was no real debate about the reality of climate change and the fact that it was mostly being driven by greenhouse gas emissions. And when that paper got published, I started getting attacked I started getting strange phone calls, hostile email, and I was actually attacked on the floor of the U.S. Senate by Senator James Inhofe of Oklahoma. And that was an Alice through the looking glass moment. And I thought, what in the heck is going on here? So I started digging and one thing led to another. I met Eric Conway, who had come across some similar experiences related to his work on history of the ozone hole. And what we discovered was this startling story that the same people who had attacked me had also attacked Sherry Rowland, who was the scientist who won the Nobel Prize for predicting the ozone hole, and also had attacked scientists who had been involved in proving the reality of acid rain and the harms of tobacco. And so when we made that discovery, we realized there was a story to be told here. And so the book Merchants of Doubt really tells that story of how the same people using the same strategies and tactics over the course of more than three decades have repeatedly, systematically tried to undermine science related to environmental and public health issues. Talk to us a little bit about some of the strategies and mechanisms that are used. And by this, I mean, you know, take your pick, whichever you want to start with the use of so-called experts, the uh, attempt to create controversies where controversies don't exist, using arguments of so-called economic freedom to push back against regulations. I mean, these things have been common. Per, you know, I know most about uh, tobacco and smoking and climate change, but I'm sure in some of the other examples you cite as well. Yes, well, exactly. Many people know about the story of tobacco now and what they didn't really realize. What we didn't realize before we wrote this book was that the same strategies and tactics were being applied in climate change and other issues. So the overall strategy is what we call doubt mongering. These folks sell doubt. And that title comes from a very famous, we could say infamous tobacco industry memo in which one industry executive said, in his own words, uh, doubt is our product. So the idea is sell doubt, manufacture doubt, uh, create doubt, in order to make people think that the science isn't really certain. Because if the science weren't clear, 
then it might be rational for us to say, well, look, why, why should we change our whole economy in order to fix climate change if it's not really real? Why should we give up smoking? We like smoking. Why should we give it up if we don't know that it's you know, actually d dangerous? So if you can create doubt, you can persuade people that we don't really know there's a problem and therefore we don't have to do anything about it. So the goal is to prevent action. So that's the overall strategy. And then the tactics include a variety of things, including some that you just said. A key tactic is to bring out supposed experts. Sometimes they're real scientists, but more often they're not actually even scientists, but they basically play scientists on TV. People who pretend to be experts who challenge the scientific information to create the impression of a scientific debate. Sometimes these people are actually scientists, but they don't have training and credibility and expertise in the particular area. But journalists and the public, we fall for this because we see these people, they're scientists. We think, oh, well, that's a famous scientist. And what we don't realize is that actually this person has never done research and is not an expert in the actual topic that he is talking about. And I say he because there's also a strange gender element of this story that it's almost always men. And that's an interesting and complicated question why that is that we didn't actually address in the book, but we could talk about if you're interested. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, one, one other specific area I'd love to touch on first is the idea, and this is a common thread between the arguments that were made around tobacco and what we're seeing now with climate change is taking the approach of freedom and business freedom and economic freedom, right? There was a very strong movement when the uh, tobacco data started coming in and telling us, listen, smoking is just bad and secondhand smoke is bad. Restaurants and bars were sort of coalesced with the idea that, hey, we're all going to lose business if all of a sudden you can't smoke in our locations. And there was this catalyzing of the economic freedom movement. I need the freedom to do what I want to do with my business. We're also seeing that with climate change and the fossil fuel industry. Exactly. So this is a crucial point, and this was a large part of what we tried to explain in the book. So another strategy is to make the argument that if we act on these problems, if we act to control climate change, if we act to protect people from the harms of tobacco, that this is a threat to our personal freedom. And it's not just a threat to our freedom as individuals, but it's a threat to democracy, to the freedom of our country as a whole. Mm. And this is a really crucial part of the argument because it's used by the tobacco industry and now by the fossil fuel industry to try to make common cause with other allies, other people who might not otherwise necessarily have any vested interest in defending tobacco or fossil fuels. So as you mentioned, the restaurant industry is a good example. Um, in the case of the fossil fuel industry, they make common cause with think tanks, some of whom are initially independent, initially have nothing to do with fossil fuels. And this was the story we told in our book of one particular think tank, the George C. Marshall Institute, which was originally created for issues that had absolutely nothing to do with climate change, had to do with national security. But these folks are deeply anti-communist. They worry that government intervention in the marketplace will be a threat to freedom. And so they make common cause with um, ExxonMobil, who funds them heavily in the 1990s, and other regulated industries, and they begin to make this argument that any regulation, any regulation at all, even a really reasonable one like trying to protect flight attendants from secondhand smoke, for example, or to protect children from the harms of secondhand smoke, they fight these regulations. And so you have a common cause being made with, on the one hand, industries that have an explicit vested economic interest in, in selling their product, 
And then other people who have a kind of what we could say more principled argument, we may or may not agree with it, but it's not necessarily pure economic. There's a political argument too. And these two come together. And this helps to explain why it's so powerful. Because many Americans who might otherwise be suspicious of the tobacco industry and realize obviously they're trying to make money or suspicious of ExxonMobil realize obviously they're trying to make money. But now it gets mingled with this argument about personal freedom that many of us are, are pretty sympathetic to. And so it begins to sound uh, more reasonable than if we simply said, yes, I'm selling a product that's killing you or I'm selling a product that's going to destroy the climate and you know, kill and displace millions of people. Okay, you mentioned think tanks, and I want to follow sort of that thread. We know that the overwhelming majority of climate science believes that human activities on Earth are impacting the climate. However, think tanks and a very small number of, of scientists who, as you mentioned, not all are actually experts in the field of climatology, have basically been recirculating some of the same uh, 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 few works that claim to show that there is not necessarily, or at least that are, there is doubt about the impact on the climate of humans on Earth. How does this, how do these relationships get forged? Do they come together where people say, okay, you care about freedom, we're anti-communist, here's a couple of scientists who are well-funded by the fossil fuel industry. We all sort of have different interests, but let's all work together because we can all benefit from sort of casting doubt on climate change. I mean, is, is it that organized or how do these relationships and doubt ecosystems get created? Yeah, well, that's a great question. It was one of the things we tried to answer in the book. And, and the answer is it's complicated and it's not just one thing. So in the book, we came across a couple of really venal examples that are as bad as what you said, where, for example, the tobacco industry actually reached out to other regulated industries and they created something called the Advancement of Sound Science Coalition, TASC. <laughs> they don't exist anymore, thank goodness, but lots of other um, equally bad organizations do still exist, unfortunately. So this was an absolute explicit uh, attempt, as you just said, to make common cause with other regulated industry. And they even created a handbook that they called the Bad Science Handbook that gave people strategies, tactics, talking points on how you could try to discredit and undermine any science that you didn't like, mm. no matter how well established that science was, no matter how brilliant, famous the scientists were who had done the work. So that's a really venal example. There are others that are much more subtle. So for example, one of the things we also document that we've seen is it could be the case that you have a scientist who's an honest and legitimate person who, for whatever reason, has a view that is not mainstream. And maybe that scientist is hard, having trouble getting funding for his work because it's not mainstream. And maybe even that scientist is a little frustrated and maybe even a little bitter, maybe even a little angry that he feels that his work's not getting the credit it is due. So what we showed in our work is that these think tanks and the industries, they reach out to people like that. They spend time scouring the literature. They go to conferences and they listen to talks to be on the lookout for a scientist who fits this profile. And then they approach the person and say, hey, you know, we're having a conference um, in Washington next month and we'd love to come and have you talk about our work. So they don't necessarily say who's funding it. They don't necessarily say, you know, we're trying to stop tobacco control or we're trying to block carbon taxes. They just make it seem like, hey, we're really interested in your work. And one of the fascinating things about this strategy is I have had scientists come up to me and tell me personally about how this has happened to them. Um, scientists who gave talks and meetings where 
you know, these are people who are not climate skeptics, they're not deniers, they're not contrarians, but they gave a talk maybe where they pointed out perhaps like some limitations of climate models. So just kind of honest scientists doing honest work, mm. because let's face it, this is how science works. It's part of our job to point out errors, mistakes, problems in, in our own work and each other's. But afterwards, someone, you know, from a think tank or from the fossil fuel industry has come up to them with this pitch. And of course, the people who tell me these stories are the ones who reject the pitches and, and kind of see them for what they are. But we know there are plenty of other examples of scientists who get lured into this. And then some of these people um, end up essentially going over to the other side and becoming advocates for these disinformation campaigns, doubt mongering. And then, you know, it becomes a kind of mixture of it might be ideological, it might be that they share the politics of these think tanks, it might be just ego that they appreciate the attention that they're getting now, now they get put on television, they, get, they might get invited to be on radio or on shows like this, um, or it may be money, because certainly in some cases, like the recent case of Willie Soon at the Harvard-Smithsonian Institution, in some cases we know that these people have been paid quite substantial amounts of money, so we now know that Willie Soon received over a million dollars um, from fossil fuel interests for his work. One easy way to make a difference and vote with your dollars is to sign up to replace fossil fuels with green energy for your home or office. I've partnered with Ethical Electric, a clean energy company that makes it fast and easy to switch to wind power for your energy needs. Nothing about how you receive your energy will change. You continue to receive your bill from your regional utility, but you'll be buying 100% Pennsylvania wind energy with your monthly dues and supporting Best of the Left at the same time. Just go to ethicalelectric.com slash best to sign up. They service states from Illinois over to Connecticut and down to Washington, D.C., and they're always working on expanding into new territory. So if you're anywhere in that area, check them out to see if you're covered. If you're in another area of the U.S., I recommend simply Googling the phrase buying green power to find the green power network from the U.S. Department of Energy, where you'll be able to find the green energy suppliers in your area. Again, that's ethicalelectric.com slash best. That link is also in the sidebar of my website or simply Google buying green power. And if you're outside the U.S., then you're on your own. There was a dream that one day I could see it. The release of a cache of 60-year-old documents show that ExxonMobil and the energy industry were aware of climate change decades ago. In other news, the sky is blue, the grass is green, and putting an avocado in a sandwich dramatically improves its taste. Those three items were the most obvious things I could think of, and yet they still weren't anywhere near as predictable as ExxonMobil being on notice about rising CO2 levels back when this mega corporation was much humbler, and in fact was actually called Humble Oil. In 1968, a report commissioned by the oil industry detailed rising levels of CO2 in the atmosphere and warned industry leaders of potentially catastrophic climate risks. This latest revelation comes from the Center for International Environmental Law and follows up on an investigation conducted by the Los Angeles Times and Inside Climate News last year, which revealed that Exxon executives were aware of the dangers posed by fossil fuels as early as 1977 and actively lobbied against any effort to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Because fuck you, world. And ExxonMobil does not seem like it'll go down without a fight. 
In response to multiple investigations into what the company knew and when, Exxon has filed a countersuit against investigators. An Exxon spokesman reiterated the company's denial, stating, To suggest that we had definitive knowledge about human-induced climate change before the world's scientists is not a credible thesis. Except you did know, Exxon. These new documents clearly show that in 1946, energy companies along with the American Petroleum Institute created a smoke and fumes committee, that was the committee's actual name, to monitor and conduct pollution research with the intention of using science and public skepticism to prevent environmental regulation and label government oversight as hasty, costly, and unnecessary. We already knew that the energy companies were aware of greenhouse gases' potential climate impact back in 1977. But these revelations show they were already working to undermine scientific research as far back in 1946, 30 years earlier than we previously thought. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, Break Free 2016, a global wave of resistance to keep coal, oil, and gas in the ground. Humanity is at a critical turning point. If we want a viable future, there is only one thing we can do, shut down the fossil fuel industry. That means millions of people joining communities on the front lines in mass, global civil disobedience right on the doorsteps of the largest, most dangerous fossil fuel project in the world. And you can do that right now by joining 350.org's Break Free 2016 happening now through May 15th at a strategically selected fossil fuel project site near you. Break Free is a global moment where for the first time in the movement we're seeing a very concrete time frame when escalated actions are happening across six continents targeting major fossil fuel projects with the message that the oil gas and coal need to be kept in the ground. It is our future. We must say no. The level of urgency is coming together very clearly worldwide. We can't wait for the politicians to catch up with that understanding. So people are basically taking things into their own hands and doing what needs to be done on the ground. Break Free 2016 is focusing on specific locations for its global actions because, quote, fighting climate change requires the courage to confront polluters where they think they are most powerful. For years, communities on the front lines have led that struggle, and this May, we can join them, unquote. In the U.S., the top actions will take place at the following locations, Anna Cortez, Washington, Albany, New York, the Chicago area of Illinois, Denver, Colorado, Los Angeles, California, and Washington, D.C. And for our listeners around the world, protesters will be taking action in Vancouver, Canada, South Wales, UK, 
Newcastle, Australia, near Berlin, Germany. There are four locations in New Zealand, two in Brazil, and more in Turkey, Nigeria, South Africa, the Philippines, and Indonesia. This is truly a worldwide wave of action. If these action locations are not close to you, the organizers encourage you to organize buses, trains, and bike pools to the event in your region. If you absolutely cannot make it to one of the primary actions, you can look for actions popping up in major cities near you or organize your own as part of Break Free. Visit breakfree2016.org to sign up and get further details on the actions nearest you. And use the hashtag breakfree2016 and hashtag keep it in the ground to join the conversation online. The segment notes include the links to all of this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if the future of humanity is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Break Free 2016 via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. No matter how much money they make, fossil fuel giants can't drown out the voices of millions. So join in the global movement and let's break free from fossil fuels once and for all. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. The laws of nature and the laws of economics are in conflict at the moment. Either everything changes because the climate changes and it changes our physical world in ways that we can barely fathom, or we change our economy in fundamental ways. But the idea that there is some middle road where we continue on pretty much as is, that's actually not available to us. It is in a lot of ways a battle between a story of the old and a story of the new. There's a lot of powerful forces trying to make sure that the story of the old continues for as long as it can. We've seen disobedience move from being something that a few people do to a mass movement confronting the fossil fuel industry. A massive oil rig outfitted for Royal Dutch Shell's remote Arctic exploration parked in Seattle's harbor on Thursday. But not everyone is happy about it. They have convinced us progress is only made through exploitation of the earth. Everyone is coming to protest. We have scientists, ecologists, and city council members who are willing to get arrested because they understand the severity of this moment. Stand up in whatever manner you can. This is our lunch counter to sit on. This is our history to be made. We hold the world in our hands. Thank you. Alberta Tar Sands, the biggest industrial project in the world, where the size of Earth that they want to move is the size of Texas. Kinder Morgan make $13 million a day. And not only do they make that much, but they're subsidized by our Canadian government. We mobilized the community, 100% consensus by Tisleawatu Nation, where we had a referendum and they said, we could negotiate for millions of dollars with Kinder Morgan. 
that could help some of our people out of poverty. Or we could use our own little resources that we have and fight them. 100% consensus, we chose to fight them. So right here is, is home. You know, we, we haven't left. This is where we've been for thousands of years. 85% of our diet came from the waters behind us. We've been measuring the quality of water here for about 20 years. It's getting progressively worse. We're devastated. And what we're trying to do is rehabilitate the damage that has caused. We're going to court soon Canada for not consulting us on Kinder Morgan expansion. One of the ministers said, why, why don't the First Nations take the money? They need it. We don't need it more than our land. We'll do whatever it takes to make sure this doesn't happen in any way possible. Civil disobedience is a powerful tool in social justice work. The law, it's not sacred. And to challenge it shakes our consciousness. If you can take that radical action in a way that genuinely speaks to everybody else, then you not only have their attention, you have their inspiration, and you build movements that way. Number one, preparation. Calibrate what you are asking for and how you ask for it so that you can win it. Then you've got to choose your strategy. You've got to choose a tactic, a target, that can successfully grab public attention. Then you've got to make sure that your execution is flawless. The media will look for every opportunity to delegitimize you. If there is one misstep, one act of violence, it's over. I've never been in the White House, but the ability to chain myself to the outside of the White House turned out to be important and empowering, and anyone can do it. Most of us don't have huge sums of money. All of us have a body that we can put in the way. I want to say very clearly that civil disobedience is but one tool in the activist toolbox. It's not the first one that you should reach for. And if you use it all the time, like any other tool, it's going to get dull. That said, civil disobedience has a role to play. Nobody should have to go to jail about climate change. In a rational system, that would be the last thing that would happen. But because the way power is distributed in our world, sometimes we have to. You've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Social movements are different from ordinary politics in that they are not simply about how to divide up the goods, but about what a good is. It enters a domain that goes beyond immediate self-interest into what's required of us as responsible human beings. The secret of civil disobedience is moral clarity. Gandhi said, I am a human being first and a citizen of my country second. He targets the fact that Indians aren't allowed to make their own salt and has a massive salt march across India to the coast 
where he bends down and picks up sea salt. How could someone possibly prevent you from doing something like that? He's taken the weakest point of his opponent and targeted it to generate the most moral clarity. Different forms of civil disobedience shaped the basis of the abolition movement, the women's suffrage movement, the civil rights movement. It's time for us to say, if you don't do something about it, we will have no alternative but to engage in broader and more drastic forms of civil disobedience in order to bring the attention of the nation to this whole issue in Selma, Alabama. At the core of activism is one simple thing, and that's voice. So many people in the world, their voice is actually just not heard. The civil rights movement had a grounded belief that the first and most important thing to do was allow the people who were on the ground to be able to shape the direction and to be the front of what was happening. It was about building the capacity to organize for action and mobilizing the public to show up in support of an action. The effect of civil disobedience is often to raise the cost of business as usual, to disrupt normal processes and procedures, which makes it more costly to resist change than to agree to it. The African people are realizing that apartheid means nothing else but oppression and exploitation. To change these conditions, the leading black liberation organization, the African National Congress, had begun a mass movement of civil disobedience, defying the laws of racial superiority called apartheid. Civil disobedience brings a spotlight to the violence of oppressive states and industries. The civil disobedience that occurred in South Africa during the apartheid years defied all apartheid laws. And it was really, really strong because it happened everywhere. From street committees, to unions, to labor movements, to student movements, everybody found an aspect of apartheid laws that affected them and then used some kind of mechanism to defy it. It didn't change overnight and it wasn't one day of civil disobedience. It takes time and you will have obstacles, but I really don't think there's any fight that we cannot win if we have the numbers. What power means in the context of social change is, of course, the story of David and Goliath. The Philistines send their powerful warrior, Goliath, to go confront the Israelites, who are afraid. Until finally, David, who is not a warrior but a shepherd, went to King Saul and says, let me go fight Goliath. The king says, you're not equipped. You got to take my sword, my shield, my helmet. They're so heavy, he can't move. And he reflects for a moment and says, wait a second, I'm a shepherd, not a warrior. He takes off all that armor, picks up a few stones, goes to face Goliath. It's only when he discovers his own resources, not those of his opponent, as the foundation of his strategy, that things begin to shift. And that's what creates those moments of opportunity for the Davids of this world. If you say you can't deal with climate change without a revolution in values, a revolution in the way we think, people will say, well, we, we don't have time for that kind of thing. 
The truth is what we don't have time for is continuing to try the same thing that hasn't worked for two and a half decades. We continue to be inspired by ordinary people having the courage to stand up against corporate interests, even against government policies that will bring harm to their communities. Hope is belief in the plausibility of the possible as opposed to the necessity of the probable. We don't have the tanks and we don't have the armed forces. Nonviolent civil disobedience is me making my voice heard against a powerful force that is holding us back. Keystone turned out to be a great victory because all over the country and the world, people looked up and saw, you actually can beat big oil. It may seem impossible right now to prevent climate chaos, but social movements have shown that the limits of the possible are there to be moved. My hope is that we come out the other side of this with a global sense of a new kind of power in the climate movement. What we need are new ways to do new things. To practice civil disobedience is necessary to be able to pursue a better life for our people. Batangas now is the center of action against fossil fuel. It's quite possible that a more radical approach will bring rapid change. It's straight math. How many people are active and engaged on this issue? How hard are they pushing? How coordinated are they? It's the people who are engaged that determine what government does. And all we have is a choice to make about whether we're going to be one of those people or not. The science is pretty dark and things are changing very fast. But I am absolutely sure there is going to be one hell of a fight. We just heard clips featuring first a short clip from the 350.org film Disobedience in which they discuss what the fossil fuel companies knew and when they knew it, followed by the Young Turks reporting on the recent signing ceremony of the Paris Climate Agreement, Counterspin interviewed Brendan DeMille on the Exxon cover-up of climate science, David Pakman spoke with Naomi Orskis about the parallels between climate change disinformation and the pro-tobacco lobby, the Young Turks discussed how new revelations have shown that big oil knew about climate change even earlier than previously thought. Our activism for today is to plug into Break Free 2016, the global civil disobedience campaign spearheaded by 350.org, and the last clip we just heard was an extended clip from 350's new documentary Disobedience, The Rise of the Global Fossil Fuel Resistance. The full film is about 40 minutes long and was just made available to watch for free on YouTube. I saw it yesterday and cannot recommend it enough. It clearly charts the path that undeniably lies in front of the climate movement. See it for yourself at watchdisobedience.com. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. And these first two voicemails are in reference to a story I told recently on the show about being a FedEx driver working as an independent contractor rather than as an employee, which stripped me and all of my fellow drivers from all of the rights that employees usually enjoy while saving the company lots of money. 
Later, there was a class action lawsuit against FedEx in California on behalf of the drivers, claiming that the drivers should have always been classified as employees, and the drivers won. Hey, Jay, it's Brian uh, from New Jersey. I'm a FedEx courier, and I heard your uh, comments at the end about uh, FedEx Ground. I'm actually a uh, uh, constitutional uh, libertarian, uh, Ted Cruz supporter, you know, all that. Uh, but I do enjoy the show. I do enjoy hearing uh, what the other uh, perspective is. But uh, trying to keep this brief, back to the FedEx part, the uh, uh, deal with uh, FedEx Ground is, yes, they are they're on the East Coast anyway, uh, independent contractors for the most part. And, the, and but uh, the people are successful at it. Uh, I know I'm I'm in a different part of FedEx, but I do know people that have bought a route and then bought another route and then bought another route, etc., etc., etc. Some people also fail. That's true. Uh, some people have bought them and uh, uh, have had an experience uh, similar to yours. But a lot of people that have bought them um, uh, really like it. I, I know quite a few of them, as you can imagine. I've been an employee of FedEx for almost 20 years. So uh, that's my story. If you play my voicemail, I'll be very happy. I'm your uh, constitutional libertarian uh, buddy, Brian, uh, from New Jersey. Talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Jay. My name is Jack. I'm calling from Baltimore. I'm responding to your shocking FedEx story from the end of episode 1005. I have no idea how crazy the system could get. I was an independent contractor in the construction industry, and I was shocked to listen to your story and think, man, we all bought pickup trucks. We all bought work boots and tool belts. Like, we had to carry extra insurance and pay our taxes quarterly and pay that self-employment tax. Like, I was so young back then, and I didn't do it correctly. I couldn't afford health insurance. I was lucky to get out of that way of living before I got injured. And you can do everything right, and make enough to live a good life in that industry, but I wasn't in a situation like that. I was in a very risky situation. So thank you for explaining this issue so well, but I do think you missed the nail on that very last point about the FedEx driver situation when you implied that you got out just in time before the buy-in money was lost. That's not quite the whole truth of the matter. I mean, you're not wrong in any way. That money spent to purchase the route is definitely gone. But that economic loss is calculable. There's a specific dollar value that we can attach to it with certainty. And that loss must be understood in the context of the economic gain that the FedEx workers could see. You might have gotten out at exactly the wrong time. I mean, if the access to health care benefits, the ability to have your taxes withheld properly, the freedom from responsibility for vans and equipment, the access to things like paid time off or paid paternity or maternity leave. If all of those economic benefits have a higher value than the loss of the buy-in, then that's still an overall raise. That buy-in might have matured at 200% or 500%, I don't know. But even if it matured at 100% or if they broke even or almost broke even, then that's still not a terrible or worthless return on their buy-in. Even if it takes someone, say, one year to recoup their buy-in rather than two years to sell their route, then that still means that that FedEx driver who purchased your exact route, if he still has it and decides like right now that he wants to get out, he might be in a better position to get back his buy-in than you did however many years ago that was. 
So I think we can support this move truly without any real downsides, or if that's too good to be true, at least with more minimal downsides than the um, picture of the sizable economic loss of a buy-in that completely disappears. So I hope considering this point is helpful. Thanks again for that story and for all that you do. Hi, Jay. This is Matt from Maryland. I just finished listening to the show on economics and taxes and really enjoyed the segments that were talking about how regressive the Social Security payroll taxes are and speed camera fines and sales taxes and how they really hurt the poor. I think so many people miss that point. It's very important. I did have a question, though, on the subject of taxes and especially taxing um, the rich. There's that right-wing meme going around, the picture of the velociraptor thinking, and he says it's something like, if cigarette taxes reduce cigarette smoking, wouldn't income taxes reduce income? And you could put it another way, like using carbon taxes, which is one of the causes the left is usually in favor of. If carbon taxes reduce carbon, wouldn't a tax on productivity reduce productivity? And I've never really heard an answer from progressives on how to um, attack that problem. And so I just would invite any comments on that. Thanks. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. A lot to get to today. Let's dive in. First of all, Brian, the libertarian FedEx driver who says that some drivers actually enjoy the contractor system. That doesn't surprise me in the least. Uh, He's basically describing the pseudo-market that exists in the FedEx contractor system. Contractors are approved to manage a route by FedEx, and that translates loosely in a very perverse way to owning one's route, which means you first have to buy your way in to get the job in the first place, but it also means that you can theoretically buy multiple routes and hire subcontractors to drive them for you. So FedEx is creating a structure in which they relieve themselves of a huge tax burden in the employment taxes, they put that right on the drivers themselves, and the burden to provide health insurance or any other benefits like that that would normally be standard. And then, as Brian describes, a very small percentage, by definition, because it's not logistically possible for a lot of drivers to be able to do this, so a very small percentage of drivers see that system, see all that exploitation coming down from FedEx, and they think, you know what? They're not the only ones who can do that. So they then buy a second route and insert themselves as a middleman where there is no need whatsoever for a middleman. When you own a FedEx route, there is no strategizing of any kind. There's nothing you can do to increase your business as an individual driver. You just have the route you have, and you take whatever packages show up each day. So an independent contractor who buys an additional route and hires a subcontractor is asking that person to take on all of the same risks. They have to pay all their own taxes, including self-employment taxes. They get no benefits of any kind. And for that, 
they get paid less than the original contractor because that person wants to factor in some extra profit for themselves, even though they did nothing to earn it. So it's a perfect case scenario of inserting oneself where one is not needed, adding nothing to the system, and yet skimming off a little extra profit anyways. So yes, that sounds like a completely exploitative system that has no business existing because FedEx should never have set up their business that way in the first place. And it's not surprising that when an unjust system is created that a handful of people are going to find a way to bend that system to their own benefit. But in a case like this one, it really is a zero-sum game. You can't increase the number of packages that you get to deliver. So if one driver owns a bunch of routes and has subcontractors run them, the only benefit he is receiving from that arrangement is from what he is unjustifiably underpaying his subcontractors. Second message, Jack, uh, a couple of similar things. I was also young, didn't have health insurance, if you can imagine that, driving around as a FedEx driver, didn't have health insurance, and didn't pay my taxes correctly at all, had to get that sorted out years later, and that was painful. And I still say that I got out just in time because I did get my initial investment back and I should theoretically be receiving a payout from that lawsuit that compensates for all the benefits that I was wrongly denied during the two years I worked there, whereas anyone who was converted to an employee would have also received that same payout, making up for what they were denied, but they would have lost their initial investment. And now finally, Matt on taxes, this is the big one. He's asking, does taxing income reduce income, as probably a libertarian would have said to him. And the answer to that is, yes, I actually think it does, but that's a good thing. And this is almost never talked about, so I'm just going to explain the whole thing. First of all, this has to do with people making logical decisions based on their circumstances and the rules of the game as laid out by the government, in this case, tax law. Uh, we're just going to set aside for a moment how often people act irrationally, and we're just going to pretend people are irrational for a minute. Okay. First of all, people in lower and middle income brackets, they're always going to try to make money because they don't have enough money to live comfortably and save for retirement and all of that. So they're always going to make money no matter how much you tax them. They're not going to decide, no, never mind, I'm just going to work less. People in the upper middle brackets who have enough money to max out their tax-deferred retirement accounts, live the lifestyle they want, and still have some leftover for general savings might consider higher taxes to be a disincentive to work and, you know, and earn more money. But I don't see that as a bad thing. And, and first of all, they'd probably only do that if they don't like the work they're doing. I mean, if they love their job, then tax them whatever you want, and they might continue doing it anyways. But if a person already has all of their you know, life needs satisfied and they can save money, well, then making a rational decision to earn less probably means that they'll consume less. And in an economy like ours where overconsumption is a huge driving factor in environmental degradation and climate change, a person deciding to consume less in order to live within a more modest means is a good thing. And not to mention, maybe they'll have more time to spend doing other things besides work, hang out with their family, et cetera, et cetera, and that's all a good thing. Now, things get really interesting when we get into the high-income brackets, 
because those people are the ones who are most often business owners. Firstly, all of the positive points I just made about encouraging less consumption fit here as well, but there's an even better point, which is getting at the heart of the question, will higher taxes lead to reduced personal income? Well, for rich people who run businesses and whose personal income from that business places them in a high tax bracket, there actually is a bit of an incentive for them to pay themselves less and lower their income because it actually might make more sense to reinvest that money in the company rather than take that money out as personal income. Any money spent as a business expense isn't taxed at all. Now, the trickle-down theory that we're all familiar with says that if we lower taxes on rich people's personal income, then they'll use that money to reinvest in their businesses and quote-unquote create jobs. Now, there are all kinds of problems with that idea having to do with supply-side versus demand-side economics and how you actually need a greater demand on your you know, goods and services in order for it to make sense for you to create a new job, but that's beside the point for now. The big idea is that this is actually completely backwards. If you lower a high-earning person's tax rate, then you're actually encouraging them to extract as much money as they can from their business because it doesn't cost them very much in taxes to do that. Conversely, if you raise their personal income taxes to, you know, whatever, 50% on earnings over $500,000 a year, then they only get 50 cents for each dollar over $500,000 that they extract in a given year. That would very likely cause them to think that that money could better be used elsewhere instead of having to give half of it to the government. So maybe they'd have some equipment that could be upgraded and like they would have otherwise thought like, nah, it's fine. But they'll think, well, better to spend the money to upgrade the equipment than give it to the government. Or maybe they'd invest more in research and development and come up with their next great idea because, you know, they would have taken it as personal income, but they're like, no, I, I don't want to give it to the government. Here, where can we spend this? What could we do some research on? Or maybe they decide that they could get more productivity out of their employees if their employees were happier. So they could choose to give everyone a raise or give everyone more vacation time or buy a ping pong table for the break room or whatever. Or, or maybe they would just choose to give the money to charity. The point is that when you raise rich people's taxes, it's very likely that they will start to think of other, more productive ways they could use that money and reduce their taxes. The result of which is that, yes, they would choose to lower their own income by spending that money in tax-free ways, either investing in their business, their employees, or in charitable causes, all of which are better for the economy as a whole and help spread the wealth and decrease the wealth gap compared to taking that money out as personal income and sticking in some investment portfolio somewhere. You know, an old battle cry of low-tax campaigners is that individuals know how to spend their money better than the government does. I say raising taxes on the wealthy is actually a huge signal to those people to figure out excellent ways to spend their money. Spend it on a business idea or trying to help others, and the government doesn't tax you a dime. The government only steps in when a rich person can't figure out any better way to spend their excess cash. And that sounds like a good system to me. 
Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. On Facebook, you can set us to see our content first, which makes it really easy. Every time you log on Facebook, if we've put out something new, you can quickly like it, share it, move on with your life. And for all the details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofaleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're doing Stop.